Hello. Hi, Ellen. How's it going? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm Zach Muller. I'm one of the hosts on the soon-to-be DIYBio.fm podcast. Uh, thanks again for taking the time to do an interview with us. Oh, no problem. Can, yeah. can you hear me? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You sound great. All right. Yeah. So first, I'll give you a little bit of background on like the, the purpose of the podcast and a little bit of the style of what we're going to do. So DIYBio.fm is going to be a podcast focused around kind of the movement of DIY bio and to try and promote it and kind of related things such as like the community labs and the new wave of accessible bio hardware and also just highlight other interesting news and projects going on within the movement uh so the interviews like the interview like we're going to do today uh the style of the podcast is going to be mostly kind of like narrative slash npr kind of style where we'll interweave uh snippets of interviews into an overall narrative for each episode so with that uh feel free to like if you ever kind of stumble on something you want to pause or rephrase something feel free to kind of take a pause like say oh let me let me rephrase that and uh we'll be glad to cut it and make it make sure it sounds kind of the best way to promote diy bio that's kind of the overall focus uh so then today i want to focus mainly on kind of diy bio as a whole and then dive a bit more into gen space and community labs how's all that sound sounds fine Cool. Alrighty. So uh, to start out, can you introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Ellen Jorgensen, and I'm the director and one of the co-founders of GenSpace, a community lab in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. So how would you describe the DIY bio movement itself? Hmm. Well, <laughs> it's it's interesting because it 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 is a movement, which means that people just self-identify as doing DIY bio. And the thing that makes it really hard to define is, I guess in general, it's doing biology in, in kind of an unconventional space, a space by, by p- potentially unconventional people. So uh, outside of a university or a corporation or the normal places that you see biology being practiced, but it, it can include everything from... Um, artists making chairs out of mushroom mycelia to people doing um, pretty high-level synthetic biology experiments. Cool. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts or understanding of how DIY Bio got its start as a movement? Well, I didn't start it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, there were several key players at the very beginning. Um, there's actually a book called Biopunks that has a, a fairly decent history of the very early parts of it, which were in many ways, I think, um, I'd say it it was an interesting way to get people interested in it, but um, to my mind, it was a bit strident and focused on confrontation. So uh, there was almost this manufactured struggle against this sort of faceless establishment, which of course is very attractive to some people, um, <laughs> uh, you know, claiming that the, the sort of the knowledge and practice of biology was being withheld from the general public, which as someone in the field, uh, yeah. I think is kind of not really true. Um, mm-hmm. The analogy I like to give is, well, I would love to be on the pit crew of an Indy 500 race car. Why are you keeping me out of the pit crew? <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes years of apprenticeship to be able to do something like work on a car like that. And it takes 
a long time to gather information and knowledge and and train in the practice of 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 doing biology and it's not that um that the knowledge is being withheld it's it's there it's in scientific papers um most of them or a lot of them are open source now uh you can pretty much get your hands on on any article any patent um but if you can't follow the protocol in it uh because you you know you don't have the training then it's up to you to get that training and it is available in books but uh the the actual lab practice is something that you have to go through um and someone has to teach you that's why a phd is like an apprenticeship you 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 plop yourself in a lab and people literally stand next to you and show you how to do stuff so um it's not that the knowledge is being withheld it's that it was only um, the only people willing to do that teaching were people that were being paid to do it in corporations. Or um, mm-hmm. so it was more that you needed to get people out of their silos and willing to, you know, do some hands-on stuff. But in, in the beginning, it, it, it was almost like people, you know, the whole name of biopunks and the biopunk manifesto that Meredith Patterson published and things like that. Um, it it made it made people very nervous because it 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 almost felt like they were they were saying that they had a right to disregard any safety procedures that yeah. had been put in place for very good reasons around this technology. So um, it 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 I, I think in some ways it was an interesting way to start the movement. Uh, but the second wave of people that came into it were more people like me who thought that it was really cool that people wanted to do biology in an unconventional space, but we realized that we had to do it in a way that um, that didn't seem like we were being reckless and irresponsible. Um, because, especially in New York City, this is the city that experienced 9-11, and for the neighborhood that we opened our space in to let us open that space, I think we had um, we had a responsibility to show them and 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 to to sort of step step forward and say we're doing this for the benefit of the community. We're not just a bunch of biohackers that think we can do anything we want because it's our God-given right and you know. <laughs> <laughs> disregard you know any any safety procedures or anything else yeah. <laughs> so um so the beginning uh, th- th- there were a few people and then uh, you know jason ob- obviously jason bob and mackenzie Cowell starting the diy bio google group and, and i'm not sure when that started i got involved in 2009 or, or late 2008 uh so it started before then um but that was really the place where people met and discussed things when i got involved Cool. Uh, so then with that, you talked about how a lot of people in the public have this thought that they can't kind of do biology on their own. So who can be a part of DIY Bio? Well, the public can, but um, the reason why we don't teach uh, remote classes at GenSpace, in other words, we don't like have online instruction, at least not at this point, is that we felt very strongly that there are things that you really needed to do hands-on. Mm-hmm. And just watching, uh, you know, a, a movie of somebody doing it 
was not sufficient. Mm-hmm. It, it's like you you can't really learn to be a great cook just by watching a cooking show. It's much better if you're in a kitchen with a, a professional chef and you know, there are things like the way things look, the way things sound, the way things feel, um, and, you know, even the way things smell, you know. I, I mean, there's stuff in the lab that's that involves all the senses, not just visual. And I think it's important for people to immerse themselves in that, and that's what these community labs started to provide. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so then... How would you recommend people get involved with the IY Bio then? Well, obviously, if there's a community lab in your area, it makes sense to 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 start going there and seeing what they've got going. Um, there aren't as many labs as I would like right now, but mm-hmm. many many cities across the country are in the process right now of of trying to get a DIY Bio group together. Uh, a lot of them are listed on the DIY Bio Google group. Um, that that website has a, um, I think it has a list of of mm-hmm. DIY groups, mm-hmm. and uh, it keeps growing. Um, yeah. I probably get an email every other week of someone who's starting a group somewhere in the world. So <laughs> are uh, they are they reaching out to you for like advice or something? Yes, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We also have a website that we started as an iGEM team project. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of unfinished, but it's got some information on it called openlabblueprint.org. Okay, cool. I think it's openlab-blueprint.org. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I'll check that out as well. Yeah, I'm actually part of starting a new lab here in Seattle as well. In addition to Hive Bio, we're starting a Sound Bio as a second lab mm-hmm. in the city. But yeah, uh, so focusing a bit more on the community lab side, uh, how did GenSpace come to be? Oh. It, we sort of fell into it. I, I had been lurking for a while. Um, at the time, I was I was working. I had a job where I was directing a, a program um, in a biotech company. Uh, we were looking for early biomarkers of, of lung cancer and other cigarette-induced diseases. And I was sitting at my desk having lunch, and I was reading a local newspaper from the town that I live in. And had a news of the weird column, and, and it had something about people making, you know, glowing green yogurt in labs in their closets, and all about DIY bio. But it gave the, the the website of the Google group, and I started lurking on it, and I noticed that there were people that were attempting to put together a group in New York, but the attempts kept failing for one reason or another. So I w- I thought it was really great that people were interested enough in what I did for a living to actually want to do it as a hobby. We had just been through eight years of a president who didn't believe in either global warming or evolution, and science funding was sort of in the toilet, and that made me very nervous. And so uh, part partly because I thought it sounded cool and partly because I thought it would be great public outreach. And also, I you know... I. I did have sort of a condescending attitude that I didn't want anyone to hurt themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just typed in, well, whoever wants to start a group, let's meet on Tuesday at such and such a coffee shop. And three other people showed up. Uh, two were students at local colleges who had 
heard of IGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, which was how really Jason Bob and Mackenzie Cowell got started um, yeah. thinking about this. And uh, their schools weren't interested in a team, and they wouldn't give them any lab space to try out their own ideas. And the third was a reporter, a trend that yeah. has continued yeah. to this very day. Yeah. Um, and that was the beginning of the group. And we started meeting at the reporter's house. Uh, he ended up being our first president, Dan Grushkin. Um, and he's still with us today. Um, and we changed his life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, so we started, this is a typical trajectory where you start meeting at someone's house or in a bar and you do a lot of talking, um, brainstorming. Uh, maybe you do a couple of really simple experiments if you have a little bit of equipment or you buy kits, you know, like mm -hmm. the high school kits for the AP biology. But at the end of the at the end of the evening, you have to kind of crumple everything up and throw it in a bucket of bleach or in the trash or whatever. And you can't really get anything real going. So we knew we had to find a space and a commercial space because a lot of biotech companies don't sell to, um, they won't ship anything to a home address. You need a commercial entity and a commercial address and you have to set up an account with them. Mm -hmm. uh, the biotech supply companies. So I had started, you know, a number of labs in the biotech industry before. So I, I knew what we had to go through. Um, it was just a, a question of finding the space. So the next step we took is we spent about six months holding meetings and workshops in the corner of a, um, a maker space called New York City Resistor. And that's a pretty typical as well. Um, to, to, to start out within a maker space that will give you some space to store your stuff and your equipment. But it became clear that we needed a bigger space. We had higher ambitions. We wanted to be a fully functioning biotech lab. So uh, we finally found this crazy building where the owner was kind of an old hippie and, and he had this vision of all these creative um, companies and nonprofits in this cooperative building and so mm -hmm. we didn't even have to sign a lease the rent was cheap and uh, he built us this incredible lab space out of old sliding glass doors and windows and um, yeah. stainless steel restaurant counters for uh, yeah. lab benches and that's how we started out it was a small space only the, the, the lab was the lab proper was like 10 by 15 and then there was a smaller area that used to be a dark room but uh, we're, we're actually only about twice that size now, and um, we can do a lot in a small space. So mm -hmm. that, that was how we started. When we moved in and we really started doing things like teaching classes to the general public and um, having lab members who paid $100 a month, that was the big, the big step. Uh, and it helped, as I said, that we didn't have to lock ourselves into a lease. We just had to come up with the money every every mm -hmm. month for the rent. And surprisingly, the revenue from the classes and the memberships was enough to pay the rent and supplies. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a very fun ride there. <laughs> uh, so what kind of people show, have shown up at GenSpace like in the early days, kind of in the middle and nowadays? Well, one of the people that joined us very early on um, was was an artist who worked, uh, she'd done some collaborative work with biologists. And so we got 
a lot of interest um, from local art students and professors in using the facility to actually either incorporate in their artwork or use the technology to comment on the technology. Probably the most famous project is Heather Dewey Hagbor's Stranger Visions where she went out and collected like cigarette butts and chewing gum off the street and then did some uh, SNP analysis on the DNA and, and mm. printed 3D portraits of people that she'd never met. Uh, that, that one went <laughs> sort of viral. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, we also got students who wanted to get more hands-on experience because a lot of programs, even in colleges, often don't really give you a lot of lab experience. We had what I call the Discovery Channel crowd, people that had seen it on television and they really wanted to try it hands-on. Uh, our classes were filled um, in the beginning and, and also today we get a lot of people in uh, about a third in the information technology, computer science, engineering, about a third in the arts, design, architecture, and a third just completely miscellaneous, everything from a janitor to um, a winemaker to a venture capitalist. And the weird thing was when we did a survey, they all said that somehow it was relevant to their career or what they were trying to do, which was interesting. Yeah. Crazy. So what have you found over the years that is like the best way to attract people to the, the space and especially like non-scientist background people? Well, teaching classes, I think, is key because I think the, um, uh, the barrier to access is mainly in people's minds. They think they can't do it. They think it's really hard. And you have to have a fun and engaging and entertaining class situation for them to get over that. They like playing with pipettes. They like the fact that they can put DNA into an organism, but um, but it's intimidating. Maybe they had a crappy experience in high school biology or whatever. But uh, I think that the the most important thing is to have activities that people can participate in, and then they 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 feel more comfortable with the technology. It becomes less mysterious. Um, so uh, the classes workshops, um, even one-off events like mm -hmm. painting with bacteria that are, mm -hmm. you know, sort of fairly low-level scientifically mm -hmm. can, can help a lot and, you know, kind of engage a community. We also have an open night once a month, which if, if we had the staff and, and the energy, we would do it every week. Um, the one thing you have to be careful of, though, is, is that none of these labs yet, I don't think, is in a position where they can be um, completely self-supporting. The only reason that a lot of these labs exist is because if you scratch the surface, you'll find someone or some ones who yeah. donated a lot of their time for free, you know, and, mm. and didn't get paid. And so the step that we had to take this past year because I had exhausted my personal resources, was um, we had to get a, a large sum of money in so we could pay people to be a lab manager, to be someone who handled the events, 
and myself to be someone who would actually go out and try to get more more money, more, you know, fundraise. Mm -hmm. uh, so in other words, start acting like a real nonprofit, which we weren't. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we were incorporated as a nonprofit, but none of us mm -hmm. had any experience in nonprofit <laughs> fundraising, and we all just ignored it for as many years as we could. <laughs> yeah. um, but we finally had to bite the bullet. And there's some interesting models out there. There are places that are getting free rent because they've convinced their city uh, that uh, that they're going to create jobs, so you can keep some of the expenses down with that. There are places that are only open certain hours, so we chose to be open twenty four seven. So we we have it staffed eight hours in the, of the day. It, it, it really just depends on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. It depends on the city you're opening it in, what kind of crowd you're attracting. Uh, we find that people want to do really sophisticated stuff, and we, we're ending up running out of room because every different type of project requires a different piece of equipment. So, you know, we, we started out with just bacteria and... and um, we could also work with non-human, non-primate mammalian cells, and we had a little cell incubator. Mm -hmm. But but now we have people that are working with yeast and other fungi, and that's a separate area. And then we have people that are working with plants, so we have this giant plant incubator. Um, so, <laughs> you know, every time somebody expands what we do, uh, it means more equipment um, luckily, most of it's donated, but mm. also we're running out of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you been in the same space since you guys started? Yeah, and the only reason we don't move is it's just, well, first of all, we love the guy who owns the building. Mm. But the second reason is it it really, it's all about location to transportation in, in New York City. And if, if you have to travel too far to get to something, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. And we're we're only a couple of blocks away from virtually every subway line in the city and the Long Island Railroad. So I don't think there's any way that we're going to move in the near future. Is there any sort of expansion opportunity within that same building? We're working on it. Okay. One of yeah. the quirks of the landlord is that he starts projects and sometimes takes a long time to finish them. So he's yeah. staging some sort of elevator renovation right now that's taking up the back half of what we would like mm. to go into. Mm -hmm. So hopefully yeah. uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel for us. <laughs> yeah. So you started talking a little bit about the diversity of projects that are there. Can you speak more about some of the different projects that you find uh, most interesting? They're kind of like ongoing projects at the space. Well, right now, um, it's funny. At one point, especially in the beginning, we had a lot of artists. Now we have a lot of entrepreneurs, which is very exciting to me. And mm -hmm. even if what they're doing doesn't work out, it validates that these labs are really good to do proof of concept experiments at at a super low cost. Mm -hmm. If you go into a biotech incubator space, the cheapest one in New York is a thousand dollars a month and we're a hundred dollars a month and we have more shared equipment. So uh, the only thing is you don't get your own dedicated lab bench. You have to mm -hmm. share. 
Mm-hmm. So it's 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 like a fraternity house kitchen sometimes. <laughs> but uh but you know people play nice and um everyone realizes that you have to be fairly meticulous so you don't contaminate somebody else's experiment. So uh we haven't had very many problems in that area. We have um four or five people that are pursuing things that could be actual commercial projects. So some of them I'm free to talk about and some of them I'm not. Mm-hmm. We have a woman who is a high-level process chemist at Merck who is rolling out a line of consumer products where she's replacing some of the chemicals that are soon to be banned in them like formaldehyde with mm-hmm. um, with her own proprietary formulations that don't have nasty stuff in them. A lot of them mm-hmm. is, is, is some sort of protein-based stuff. And uh, all she needed was a place to do stability studies for her products. And where else can you go in, find a lab space that has the incubators, the plate reader, the equipment that you need Mm -hmm. at at that cost? Um, And, and, you know, a a short-term thing. Mm -hmm. People come in and sometimes they have projects that they only want to work on for a month or eight weeks, particularly the artists. And... You can't just go in and say, I want to use a lab space for a month anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, another, another project is we have a retired neuro, neuroscientist who's working on an RNA-based therapeutic. And he actually managed to do RNA-free work at GenSpace, which <laughs> amazes me. We have, yeah. uh, we have people that are trying to express uh, different materials in yeast and bacteria. Uh, so, so sort of biomaterial, real synthetic biology projects. Mm-hmm. Some of them are using um, CRISPR to engineer their organisms. Uh, it's it's all being done at a fairly sophisticated level. A lot of these people either have some training in the biosciences already professionally, or have someone they're partnering with that's helping them out. Mm-hmm. And in in terms of of uh, other types of projects, um, we get we get people who want to do all sorts of things. We had a teenager who read a paper about certain um, genetic markers of ADHD, and he wanted to test himself to see if he had those markers. And so we helped him go through the paper and order the right primers. And so he did some genomic exploration on himself. <laughs> we were working right now uh, with tardigrades as part of our iGEM team project and that's a lot of fun. Tardigrades or water bears are these little um, creatures that live in water and in moss and they're famous for being uh, able to go into a dormant stage where they're so hardy you can actually send them into outer space and retrieve them and they they will live. (laughs) So the cold and the vacuum of outer space. So uh, they have these proteins in them that help them survive. And uh, we're trying to, well, we're taking the genes uh, and we're trying to express those proteins in other organisms like bacteria and yeast and see if we can purify them and complex them with molecules that people might want to preserve like proteins, mm-hmm. unstable mm-hmm. proteins and things like that. 
the end game would be to, 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 to try and find a better way of preserving things like vaccines or reagents in areas of the world where you don't have a cold chain, stuff like that. Yeah, nice. Uh, or, you know, would allow you to dry them, maybe freeze-dry them and ship them like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just a lot of different stuff. We have an artist who's very interested in uh, kind of biology and the interaction with the human body. And uh, she's <laughs> she wants to grow stuff on herself. I don't know if this is going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. She realizes this may not be possible, uh, but she's done a lot of work with bacterial cellulose and kind of making uh, clothing and objects out of that and the fungal mycelium stuff. Mm-hmm. We have people that are interested in re- remediation. They they want to try and uh, find new ways to, say dissolve plastic with with mushrooms uh or bacteria we have um uh one one guy who he did a lot of work and then decided that uh it wasn't a cost effective project or or process it was Mm -hmm. taking spent grain from the brewing industry and trying to turn it into animal feed by using a fungus to convert it into carbohydrate it turned out the process mm-hmm. was was not competitive because it was too expensive. But he was able to mm-hmm. do proof of concept experiments mm-hmm. uh, in our facility to determine that without outlaying a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's cool, cool mix of things there. We've also uh, d- d- yeah. we dived into the Gowanus Canal, which is a local polluted waterway, and we're still working on that. We're trying to isolate some pathways. Uh, that might be of interest for detoxification of, of the sort of stuff that's at the bottom of the canal. Cause these organisms yeah. are living down there. And a lot of them are eating yeah. it. Oh, jeez, <laughs> That's crazy. Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned there's like some people that like a lot of the projects seem to be led by somebody that has some sort of science background. And if not, they have somebody that they're partnering with for that. So what kind of other collaborations have you seen within the lab? Um, well, uh, Hmm. So I can't talk about some of them, unfortunately, because yeah. yeah. commercial projects. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and some of them were were, you know, were were kind of hush hush. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, what I like to see is is the collaboration between, say, uh, someone who's interested in new materials for the arts, and then the people that are interested in synthetic biology and engineering organisms to produce new materials. That's probably the most obvious collaboration that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know there's there's kind of this mythology around these spaces that there's going to be all of this cross-disciplinary collaborative stuff, but a lot of it, it's interesting, it seems like it happens almost outside gen space, but there's no space for the collaboration to happen. So it's not so much that gen- people meet each other at GenSpace, although they do, and it's a great community, uh, but people come in who have already formed an interdisciplinary partnership, but they, they, don't, they don't really have any place to actualize what their ideas are. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And then how about collaboration between different labs around the world, like GenSpace and the others around 
around the world? It's kind of like herding cats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's much yeah. easier for us to collaborate with an academic lab than it is for us to collaborate in some ways with another DIY bio lab because academic labs are used to collaborative projects and there's sort of a, there's, I don't know, a sense of responsibility from both parties of carrying the project forward if, if you commit to it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also usually a fairly good precedent set for sharing credit around something and each party since they're two different very different organizations the community lab and the academic partner each has things that the other doesn't mm -hmm. so for example the um, the academics might have access to higher level technologies but they don't have access to kind of community engagement and involvement, or uh, they may need even not have considered the activity that we propose until we proposed it to them. Yeah. That's what happened with the Gowanus Project uh, and our collaboration mm -hmm. with um, Wild Cornell Medical College. And so uh, those collaborations tend to work fairly well. Collaborating between two DIY bio groups, uh, it's hard because of the distance. It's also mm -hmm. hard because each lab has a very different flavor, but yet we're all sort of trying to do the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. And there also isn't a clear hierarchical structure in a lot of these labs. Mm, yeah. um, we started with a more um, loose structure at GenSpace where we had something like six or seven board members and everyone was involved in every every decision that we made. And then as we got larger and we're trying to attract funders who would give us larger amounts of money to do what we wanted to do, it became clear that they wanted to know like whose responsibility it was to follow through on something, who was in charge, who was responsible. And we had to create more of uh, an organizational chart that made the funders happy. So in a way, we were dragged kicking and screaming into more organization than we would have wanted, I guess, originally. But that was the only way to grow, to grow past a bunch of people just sort of meeting and doing very low-cost things and, and not being able to do a greater good for the community, things like, you know, more student internships and things like that. And also being able to buy and use uh, higher level technologies. So, uh, so yeah, um, I, it, and sometimes it's hard if you're trying to collaborate with another group and you, you, you don't really know who, who's the point person and who's the decision maker to, to, to say that some of that group's resources should go into this collaborative project. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it can be sense. it can be somewhat amorphous, and mm -hmm. it's hard. One of the things I th I thought was really funny was a couple of years ago, someone tried to put together something that I've been kind of toying with. At one point, I was actually trying to see what interest there was, wasn't it, of a consortium mm -hmm. of these labs where we could yeah. potentially go out and um, try to get funding as an entity. Mm -hmm. 
just the way yeah. you know the fab labs are funded centrally so oh, uh, the problem was <laughs> mm -hmm. we we started um, talking uh, through an email group and we couldn't even agree on a name it broke <laughs> down at the point where we couldn't even agree on what to call ourselves and I thought that that was a symptom of how diverse this community really is you have people mm -hmm. that are that fiercely believe that it should be a very um, decentralized uh, governing body for these mm -hmm. things yeah. and that everyone should have an equal say and it should be a hundred percent democratic every step of the way and then you have organizations like Genspace that chose to become more hierarchical because we saw the advantage to the way we wanted to go, which was to engage much more of the community and um, particularly offer programs to New York City schools. Yeah. So given your experience with that switch to a more organized structure, do you think these labs around the world will slowly kind of fall into that path as well? They'll all become a bit more structured so they can actually grow and reach the community? No, not necessarily. I mean, if we just wanted to be sort of a little hacker space, we probably could have continued indefinitely like that, just mm -hmm. scraping together enough money to pay the rent. Yeah. Um, it it brings uh, it it. I think though it it it's a little bit of a disservice to the community that you're based in, though, because yeah, there there is kind of an undercurrent of somebody should be taking care of security and and making sure that the organisms are cataloged and you know what you have and nobody's bringing any weird stuff into the lab and in that case it really helps if you have some sort of structure and you 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 have membership agreements and you have lab managers and things like that so it's a little different from a regular maker space where you've got maybe a 3D printer and a laser cutter nobody seems yeah. to be afraid that they're gonna make a drone that's gonna you know kill everyone in New York in one of those spaces yeah. but yeah. you know once in a while you do get people who even jokingly wonder what you're cooking up in the bio lab yeah on that note uh, I've seen a lot that you've kind of brought in like the FBI and Department of Homeland Security into the have them involved in some fashion or whatever what can you speak more to that what that is like well in the beginning we were terrified it wasn't that far uh, after the, um, um, oh, I'm blanking out on the name. Uh, it wasn't that far um, afterwards from the Steve Kurtz debacle where the yeah. FBI arrested uh, this artist who was part of the critical arts ensemble because they found Petri dishes in his house after... Um, a medical a 911 call uh, because mm -hmm. his wife had 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 a heart attack and passed away and they mm -hmm. freaked out and they they thought that there was bio, potentially bioterror involved and um, yeah. after that incident and the fact that they never were able to charge him with anything because he wasn't guilty of anything yeah. uh, they kind of changed the way they were operating and tried a more collaborative approach with the community 
-hmm. So they reached out to not only the academic and industrial communities that were doing modern biotech like synthetic biology, but also to the DIY community. And we met them for the first time at iGEM in 2009, where we didn't participate, but we, we went just to see what was going on. Hmm. And there was actually a meeting of DIY bio groups, uh, sort of informally, at that iGEM and uh, yeah. The one of the um, Boston area FBI agents came to the meeting and we were all a little freaked out. Uh, in the end, it turned out he really was interested in the stuff and he actually became a member and <laughs> did all sorts of fun things like made beer. and. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but we were freaked out. So I actually marched up to Ed Yu, who was in charge of that whole effort and still is the main person who interacts with iGEM. He's in the uh, biological counterterrorism group uh, of the FBI. Mm -hmm. And I asked him for the contact. I, I said, can you pass my contact information along to whoever your counterpart is in New York? Because we don't want any, um, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't want any trouble. Yeah. Uh, and he did. And they were, everyone was delighted because obviously we were deliverable to their bosses that they had now engaged this mysterious DIY bio community. <laughs> and, um, and so in, it, actually for the first couple of years, it, it was almost ridiculous. We did so many events with them, everything from uh, sort of these uh, bridge building things where mm -hmm. a whole bunch of agents from all over the country and a whole bunch of DIY people from all over the country gathered at Genspace one year and the next year it was at BioCurious on the West Coast mm -hmm. and um, had a big little like a symposium where everyone talked about their work and uh, everything from that to actually Dan ended up going to FBI training <laughs> places <laughs> and uh, talked about DIY bio and, and like trying to explain the difference between a DIY bio lab and a meth lab. Uh, they even produced a little brochure on that topic with photographs of Genspace as the DIY bio lab. Okay. <laughs> Look, no glassware and Bunsen burners, yeah. no chemistry equipment. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but it's really tailed off quite a bit. I see them at events, and uh, once in a while, uh, we'll invite them to come to Genspace and do something with the general public. Last time they did a really cute thing where, uh, for kids, where they had a you know like a crime scene thing, and they were teaching them how to tell the difference between you know hairs from cats and dogs and people oh. and fingerprint lifting and mm -hmm. evidence gathering and stuff like that. So even though the interactions have kind of tailed off, it's kind of tailed off in a positive way. Like they. Oh yeah, are, yeah. It's a okay, very cordial yeah. relationship. Okay. And cool. it and it it, I think what they wanted us to be comfortable with is if, the, there's a there's a big campaign in New York. If you see something, say something to try and get the general mm -hmm. public to if they see anything that looks suspicious to report it to somebody, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the way they feel about people in our labs. Uh, the labs are really terrible places to do clandestine work because everyone yeah. is so nosy and there are always people going in and out of freezers and everything is mm -hmm. shared and it's 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 a it's a much it's a very community oriented place 
but um, but they feel that if people understand what the stuff looks like, that they're more likely to see if if it's in a really weird place or people are talking about that technology in a weird way that that they might be more inclined to pick up the phone or whatever and and mention it to somebody. And I think that that's their goal because, you know, I asked Ed once about was he afraid about these desktop DNA synthesizers that we keep hearing are coming yeah. and people keep trying to DIY. And he said, you know, this sort of thing is inevitable. DNA is essentially uncontrollable. And what you have to rely on is intelligence work, um, the community uh, being aware and alert, stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. So then more generally with just like the, the general public, how's the, uh, given that you've been like, you've had Genspace for many years now, how's the general public's perception of DIY bio changed since you started Genspace? Well, it's funny because we see ourselves in the lens of the press because we don't advertise and New York is such a big city. There's so many things going on. Uh, most people have never heard of us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not like we're big news in the town. Mm -hmm. So um, the press has changed a lot. In the beginning, it was very inflammatory. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was funny because... I often joked with um, the FBI guys that we had something in common, which was that everyone always underestimated our ethics and overestimated our capabilities. So <laughs> it, it was the situation where they would first write an article saying how completely ineffectual we were and what was the point of having people who were, you know, not trained, working in places that weren't equipped, uh, in their spare time that the, they never were going to accomplish anything. The flip side was that we were going to somehow either accidentally or on purpose create something that was going to be really, really dangerous and harm a lot of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I just felt like saying, make up your mind one or the <laughs> other. <laughs> yep. We're going to kill the world. We're going to save the world. One or the other. Yeah. So, um, so I think that there's a more realistic view of it now, although every time a new inflammatory thing comes along in biotech, there's always someone who writes a story about how that's going to play out in the DIY bio world. The, the latest, of course, is CRISPR. Yeah. The one before that was the H5N1 paper where they were revealing to people how to create uh, a more infectious flu virus. So, of course... Yeah. There was a New York Times article about DIY labs are new fear in H5N1, which was completely fabricated. The mm -hmm. reporter who wrote it took an offhand comment by one of the people on the committee that was reviewing the paper uh, who didn't know anything about DIY bio, had never engaged with us at all. Um, saying, well, probably who you have to worry about is these people who are doing it in their basements. Um, which is mm. ridiculous because yeah. it's much more complicated technology than we're doing. Yeah. It's not that easy to create a really good pathogen, even if you're a professional. Mm. And nobody wants to do that. Mm. Everybody understands in our community that if somebody does something stupid, it's going to reflect badly on everyone. 
and everyone is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge amount of peer pressure to behave in a way that's, that's not irresponsible. So, for example, when the Glowing Plant Project started, it originally was out of BioCurious, and when it became clear that they were going to give away uh, a lot of GMO seeds and that some of the claims they were making they might not be able to um, actualize. Uh, I mean, within a very short period of time, they were asked to leave uh, BioCurious and um, Mm. find a place of their own. And, yeah. and start their company elsewhere. Uh, I think the same thing is happening right now with uh, the Indiegogo campaign around CRISPR. Uh, a lot of uh, yeah. DIY people are, are not happy about that because of the depiction of um, Petri dishes in a refrigerator next to like beer and food and other yeah. things that are obviously meant to um, be sort of theatrical mm-hmm. and 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 don't really advance uh, the the practice or the, you know the the outreach that we're doing mm-hmm. in these communities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so going a bit, a bit back to the community lab aspect, uh, for the people that are in cities that don't currently have community labs, what kind of advice do you have for them if they're looking to start a community lab of their own? The, the Google group is still a fairly good place to start, just to nose around and see if, you know, once in a while you'll see posts like, uh, is, any, is anyone starting a lab in, you know, Salt Lake City or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one good place. Uh, the other thing I always advise people to do is start a meetup group mm-hmm. and make sure you have a lot of good keywords in it. Um, local universities are also often places to, uh, to start because a lot of times students have cool ideas, but no place to do them. And so that, that really was a big impetus for the start of GenSpace. Mm -hmm. Uh, meetups are good because you can start them and get a feeling for whether or not people stick around and you can do very simple activities you can just do a dna extraction you can do something you can buy some bioluminescent dinoflagellates and 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 play with them Mm -hmm. you can do things that are fairly low cost and and sort of engaging and and one of the things i think genspace did right was we never committed ourselves more than we could afford at the time so rather than raising a large sum of money in the beginning and then working through it and then having to go, oh my goodness, now what do we do? Uh, we just kind of gradually grew as we got more people that were willing and we got more of a feel for how much money we could make on a continuing base with the classes, how many members we could handle or how, member, how many members we were likely to have at a time, which seems to be hover around 20 and 30 members. It's interesting. Uh, and just things like that, trying to gauge that before you, certainly before you sign any kind of a lease or you make any kind of a commitment, unless you have someone who's willing to, um, to commit a sum of money or, you know, I I know Hive Bio started by raising $5,000 on Kickstarter. That's fine. 
mm-hmm. that's fine. But, uh, you know, don't use it as your money to, to sort of continually exist. Yeah, you, you, can, yeah. you can set up some infrastructure, buy some equipment, maybe get your first mm-hmm. lease signed, but make sure you have enough people and enough interest to keep going. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, so, what were some of the. Uh, sorry, brain freeze. Um, so, what are some of the things that have kind of been most popular in terms of like workshops at Jen's Place so far? Well, bioluminescence, everybody loves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also, we, we have a continuing class that's kind of our introductory class. Uh, we teach it in two formats. We used to just teach it three weekends in a row. So it was 12 hours spread out over three, four-hour sessions, which we called Biotech Crash Course, where we mm-hmm. taught the fundamental techniques of genetic engineering. So restriction enzymes, running gels, doing bacterial transformations, working with plasmids, doing PCR, uh, things like that. And that continues to be popular. Of course, we're in a huge city, so mm-hmm. you have to be conscious of how big your area is and how many people you you know you can reasonably draw in. But we've had a pretty good um, pretty good run with that class. Then we started getting uh, because we're a gateway into the United States from Europe, we started getting a lot of requests from people overseas to hold a class in a format that was one week long so they could do it. They could come over and take a vacation for a week, play around in New York during the day and take the class at night. So mm-hmm. we have something we call Biohacker Boot Camp, a name we totally stole from, I think, BioCurious. Yeah. <laughs> we all steal from each other. Yeah. And... Um, and and uh, so hold the same class except for three-hour sessions at night. Uh, we taught a synthetic biology class for a while. We haven't taught that in a while. We're right now doing a CRISPR hands-on class, mm-hmm. which is a bit controversial. Yeah. But we put people through a workshop that has a lot of the kind of social context of CRISPR and explores all the moral and ethical questions around it. So we feel pretty good about that. Um, we've had a lot of luck with some of the art workshops. We've got some guest people doing classes and workshops now. Very popular in biodesign, biomaterials, um, you know, printing with bacteria, doing all mm-hmm. sorts of interesting uh, things mm-hmm. um, with bacterial cellulose and... Uh, just kind of really cool stuff. Uh, Our workshops really run the gamut. We have a gal who's done a bunch of workshops around fermentation. So uh, fermented breads like sourdough, fermented drinks like kombucha. Uh, We've got um, people from local universities running bio, you know, very serious bioinformatics workshops around analyzing uh, whole genome data. So that's kind of the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really just, if we, f- we see somebody who's doing something interesting that relates to biology, we invite them to do a workshop. 
Yeah. Or give a talk. We have a talk series that's really great. That's totally free. We just invite you guys host that. Do you host that talk series at GenSpace itself? Yeah. uh, Actually, one of the problems this past year is we've gotten such a big response to the talks that we're starting to not have the space. We, you know, we're getting up to like sixty people attending these talks. (laughs) So uh, it's getting. We used to have a bigger space in the building that we could access, but now um, Mm. our landlord has piled a bunch of junk in that area. (laughs) So (laughs) we can't access it. So we've been scrambling a bit and reaching out to other organizations to help us host them. But that's a good problem. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome, though. It's pretty big, 60 people. (laughs) We get some awesome talks. We had one of the ones I really enjoyed was the Mars Ice House. These were the people that won a competition that NASA... uh, held for a temporary structure on Mars okay. and what was really cool was that they were designers and scientists and what they came up with was something that their criteria were not only something that had to work and be feasible but mm-hmm. as they put it if this is going to be the first structure on another planet yeah. it has to be iconic in design <laughs> And so they designed this thing that would be made out of ice and lit from within. And it was really gorgeous because it looked like sort of this giant fin or something sticking up or the top of a stegosaurus kind of sticking up over the landscape, all glowing. (laughs) That was one of my favorite talks. We had one on the science of magic. We've had them uh, on, you know, subjects like cancer and uh, vaccines, uh, genetically modified foods, um, uh, all sorts of crazy talks. A lot of artists who work on the bio um, art sort of interface. Uh, It's a good series. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting for sure. We also Are those have this monthly? huge effort this year that we just started called the Biodesign Challenge, where oh, cool. we challenge design schools to teach a semester-long course, which is uh, a project-based course, where we partner the design professors with professional scientists to help the, the students, and we provide them with a lot of background material and resources around uh, modern biotech and we ask them to imagine uh, a future manifestation of biotech oh, and nice. then the best project from each class goes to a final competition and there's an award for the best project and uh, this year we had 12 schools and the final competition was held at uh, MoMA and oh, cool. it was it was really really cool. Uh, some of the projects were great. Uh, one team yeah. had this filter. They were going to use spider webs to filter particulates from the air. So they had this device that sort of oh, wrapped around your neck and sort of fit over your face. But there was a compartment oh. with a spider and a web in it. <laughs> yeah, gosh. And they imagined towers in local parks where you would put kind of like the beehives that have those pieces that slide out. Where you get the okay, honeycomb, yeah. but it was you would mm-hmm. you would have the spider build a web and then you would slide it out and put it into your mask. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's funny. 
sounds really cool. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) so we're going to continue that um, into the next year as well. Yeah. That sounds great. Uh, So we passed the end of the hour here. I don't want to keep you too long. Was there anything else kind of like that that you wanted to plug about Genspace itself or anything kind of in that space? Well, I think one of the things that I'm most passionate about right now in terms of what these spaces can do and what value they can add is there are so many schools all around the country where there are teachers who want to teach modern DNA science and don't have the resources and sometimes they don't have the um, the experience to do it. And one of the things that I think these spaces are really good at is doing biotech on the cheap and explaining it to a, the general public and having them come up to speed really quickly. So one of the things that we're trying to do at Genspace is establish ourselves as a resource for all the public schools in New York City. And we have a teacher that sort of piloted this over the past year where um, he used our space. He became a member and he used the space like a member would to, um, to try out techniques, to learn stuff. And he ended up being able to produce a very effective curriculum for his school uh, using the knowledge that he gained in the hacker space and also uh, workarounds for things that might be too expensive or um, not available. Yeah. So I think there's a huge potential for these spaces to um, to provide a lot of value. And uh, I think that that's, that's definitely a potential funding source for a lot of the spaces too. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind okay. of fun. I never thought I would get that interested in... Um, high school STEM education, but um, the more we we interact with these kids from New York City that really really want to do something in the sciences and just don't have any place to do it, uh, mm-hmm. the more rewarding it is t- for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I may steal that idea. That sounds really cool to have teachers kind of use the space for the designing their workshops. That's yeah, awesome. we're also trying to partner with. Um, Manu Prakash at Stanford, who has all of those crazy inventions like the $1 microscope and the 10 cent centrifuge and all that. (laughs) Because, you know, really, he's doing it with third world countries in mind, but some of the New York City public schools are almost like third world countries and resources that they have. It's really awful. Yeah, yeah, there's big, big range of schools there. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Uh, yeah. So again, thank you very much. Uh, one, one last thing I was curious if uh, another person we want to try and have on one of the early episodes is kind of uh, somebody who does DIY bio now, but they don't have like the traditional science or biology background to try and show to listeners that uh, it's basically anybody can get into this kind of thing. Do you know anybody that would maybe be open to doing an interview for the podcast that fits that description? Um, I'd say there are a couple of people that come to mind. Uh, Heather Dewey Hagborg, the artist that did the Stranger Visions project, had no science background at all when she walked in the door. Um, and uh, she's now built a bio lab at, uh, at uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, which is where she ended up getting a job. So that's one person who, and she's very articulate. Uh, the other person, our greatest success story, and I'm not sure if it's cheating because he did have a PhD in engineering, uh, but he's completely self-taught in synthetic biology. And now I have him teaching the crash course or the, uh, the boot camp. Mm -hmm. 
and he's he's a serial entrepreneur he mainly did work in telecommunications software and he uh, he was looking for sort of the next area to innovate in and he mm -hmm. came upon synthetic biology he read a lot about it and he took our classes and he 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 sold his last company or idea or whatever so that he can actually pursue it more than just a part-time basis mm -hmm. but uh, he's someone who I find very interesting because he essentially went from zero to trying to start a biotech company. And what was his name? Uh, his name is Mike Flanagan. Okay, cool. Awesome. The only well, downside is he decided to call his company Flanagan, and I said, that's like a flatulence <laughs> medicine. You can't yeah, call it Flanagan, <laughs> but he likes it. Oh, crazy. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for uh, your time and for the interview. Uh, it's been really great to kind of hear your perspective on all this stuff. And if uh, you we'll want me to connect you with either of those people, let me know. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll chat with the uh, other hosts uh, this weekend and see what their thoughts are and who, who we want to reach out to. But that sounds great. Uh, yeah, thanks again. Uh, hopefully we'll... Uh, yeah, hopefully whenever I'm in New York City next, I'll get a chance to visit Genspace and kind of see it for myself too. Oh, you absolutely should. Yeah, I've been meaning to visit a lot of people and stuff over there, so I'll have to make, I'll have to make some time for it. All right. <laughs> yep, awesome. Thanks again so much. Thank you, Zach. Yep, have a great day. You too.